Hey everyone, and welcome to the Plant Industry News Podcast, co-hosted by me, Holly Hughes and Olivia Doyle, with the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services Division of Plant Industry. As a regulatory agency for the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services, the Division of Plant Industry works to detect, intercept, and control plant and honeybee pests that threaten Florida's native and commercially grown plants and agricultural resources. Thanks for joining us. On today's episode, we'll hear from Dr. Trevor Smith from the Director's Desk and part one of our interview with Eric Rorick and Sidonia Steininger from the Bureau of Methods Development and Biological Control as they share about a new upcoming biological control program for Brazilian pepper tree. Then stay tuned for news and announcements in the Division Digest. From the Director's Desk with Trevor Smith. Hello, DPI. So October has been dominated by a virus in tomatoes. And so I think that's the first thing I'm going to hit on today is the tomato brown rugose fruit virus, which will now be called the tomato virus for the rest of this interview, uh, just because it's so long. But this is actually a pretty interesting situation where we had our tomato growers uh, come to us about six months ago and mentioned that there was this virus that had showed up in uh, Mexico and that they had had a very small outbreak in California that was quickly eradicated. And uh, they wanted to know if we could do a pest risk analysis and basically what is it that we could do to help them to make sure this doesn't, didn't show up in Florida. So we did that. We did a pest risk analysis. We did a pest alert on this. And um, sure enough, uh, we actually had a UF uh, entomologist uh, looking in a supermarket at tomatoes about three weeks ago, four weeks ago, and actually saw signs of this virus in tomatoes in the, in the supermarket from Mexico. Brought it back to his lab, tested positive for the virus. He quickly sent samples up to us here at DPI. We tested it, verified that it, it was in fact the tomato brown rugose fruit virus. So this led to a, a huge blitz where we had hundreds of our inspectors going out to supermarkets and retailers all over the state. And so far now we've found 49 positive samples. Uh, almost all of them are from Mexico. And then the few that seem to possibly be from somewhere else might still be Mexican tomatoes that were repacked in other states. So we're doing all the tracebacks right now trying to determine which farms these are coming from. The shippers and brokers have been great, very proactive. Every time we find a positive, we relay that information to them and they shut down those pathways. So whatever farm comes back positive in Mexico, they, they close it off. Uh, they obviously have a vested interest in keeping clean product coming into our stores. Uh, but this is an ongoing situation. So I, I, we did find one other positive from Guatemala also. We don't get a whole lot of tomatoes from Guatemala but clearly the disease is there as well. So this is a nasty one. This is actually something that can be transmitted uh, through seed. It can be transmitted from clippers or other equipment that's used from uh, fruit to fruit or plant to plant. And it could easily be transmitted through pollen by pollinators. So even a bumblebee or a honeybee can land on a infected plant and spread the disease. So this is definitely something we do not want in Florida. 
So that's ongoing. I'll probably have an update again next month uh, because we're still doing all these trace backs, trace forwards, and, and trying to track all these positive fruit down. Another thing that came up this month is we've actually got an interest in growing cotton in South Florida. We haven't grown cotton in South Florida in 40 or 50 years, and this can all be traced back to the pink bollworm program. Uh, that's actually one of the one of the worst pests that the United States has ever seen for cotton. And it took 101 years to eradicate pink bollworm from our cotton production. In fact, uh, Secretary Purdue signed the eradication documents last year saying that the pink bollworm had been eradicated from all commercial cotton production areas in the United States. Unfortunately, the pink bollworm still exists in the Everglades in Florida. So we've always had a big buffer in the state from the Everglades all the way up to where we actually grow cotton typically, which is normally the panhandle, but occasionally you'll get it as far south as Gilchrist County. But there were still hundreds of miles uh, between cotton production areas and pink bollworm on wild cotton plants in the Everglades. Well, now we have interest because so many of the citrus groves in South Florida have gone under because of greening they're looking at other crops. And a couple of experiments were done over the last three years growing cotton down there and they actually found that they were able to double their yield from what you see in the panhandle. And apparently the quality of the cotton, the fibers are longer and stronger and healthier, so it's a better cotton as well. So there's a big interest in growing cotton down there. And so we've actually had a meeting yesterday with the commissioner and uh, some of our cotton growers to talk about this because Obviously, we've got concerns about the pink bollworm getting back out of the Everglades and getting back into the cotton production areas. So we don't want to leave any kind of uh, breadcrumb trail up through the state of Florida up to our commercial production. And then, of course, commercial production in Georgia and Alabama and Texas. Uh, so this is something that's an ongoing conversation. We're trying to do our best to mitigate the risk, recognizing that our growers really do. They're in trouble down there. They need to find another crop. Uh, other than citrus, but at the same time recognizing this is a really, really nasty pest that we do not want getting back into commercial cotton. So we're continuing that conversation with the growers, with the USDA. There's also a concern about BT cotton being grown down there because there's a worry that there's going to be cross-pollination between BT cotton and our wild cotton. And as you can imagine, the, the genome of wild cotton doesn't have any kind of genetic modification. So there's an EPA component of this as well because they don't want any crossover with our BT cotton cross-pollinating with our naturally occurring wild cotton. So it's kind of a complicated situation and with cotton in South Florida right now, um, that's something else that we're, we're gonna continue working on. We also had an interesting find in Alachua County just this month called the bean pod borer and it's a moth that we know occurs in Mexico. We actually had a report last year of it down in Key West. So we sent a team down to Key West. Uh, Dr. Hayden, Jim Hayden was with the, the CAPS team down there. And we wanted to see how big the infestation was down in the Keys. And we never found any other than the original first find that was from an, actually an amateur lepidopterist down there actually found that specimen. We never found uh, any more, so we just assume it's a very small breeding population in the Keys. 
So now all of a sudden we find one in Alachua County. So we're doing a little work to see you know, where this might have come from. But this is a potential pest of beans, particularly pole beans, uh, string beans, uh, just your traditional beans. This, this definitely could be a problem, uh, but we don't know because normally it just occurs in natural areas and feeds on legumes that occur out in natural areas or, or disturbed areas. So that's something else we've got new. We've had some interesting conversations with our mamay growers in Florida over the last couple of months. For those of you not familiar with mamay, this is uh, mamay sapote is a large tropical fruit. It typically takes two years to develop. So it's quite an investment if you're a mamay grower. It takes you two years to get a full-size fruit. However, it's one of the most expensive fruits in the world right now on the market. Very expensive. It's a unique taste. It's really neat. It's a very neat fruit. If you're ever down in the homestead area and you get out to uh, Robert is here or one of the tropical fruit stands, definitely try mamay. It's, it's an interesting one. But Florida is the only place in the United States where we actually have commercial mamay production. And there's been some discussion at the national level of starting to import mamays from Mexico. So naturally, our growers are concerned about that. Uh, partly just because the the chance of, of pests coming in from Mexico, in particular southern Mexico, where there is a, I've mentioned in past podcasts, that there is a major outbreak right now of Mediterranean fruit fly throughout uh, southern Mexico and Belize. And that's, of course, where most of your tropical fruit production is. So, uh, so our, our growers have been concerned. Uh, we've, we've been talking to, uh, to the USDA leadership about this, and as of now, they're putting this, this idea of bringing mamay in on hold. It's just they need to get, Mexico needs to get control of this medfly outbreak. Uh, we need to do a better pest risk analysis of mamays coming in uh, from Mexico and, and so forth. So that's something that a lot of people don't hear about that we do all the time. There's constantly countries around the world wanting to open up new markets in the United States for various agricultural products. And for every one of those, the USDA has to do some sort of pest risk analysis, and then we tend to, um, to do our own as well. And it's just something that we have to have the expertise to be able to do that, and, and it's something we do constantly, and it will change things sometimes. I mean, there are often times that we can show that the risk of something, a disease or a pest coming in from a foreign nation just far outweighs any benefit from bringing that into the country. So that's something that goes on a lot, and that's really part of why we have such a close relationship with our growers and our grower groups, because we work together on trade issues as it relates to pests and diseases. Yeah, really it was the tomato virus that dominated this month. So I think that's all I've got for you this time. And I look forward to speaking to you again next month. Bye. When you travel by land, sea, or air, ask, can I bring it? And declare agricultural items. With your help, we can safeguard natural resources and protect the food supply from invasive pests and disease. Whatever your destination, enjoy the journey. And remember, don't pack a pest. Today on the podcast, we have Sidonia Steininger and Eric Rorig from the Bureau of Methods Development and Biological Control. Thank you both so much for joining us today and for agreeing to be on the podcast. 
do y'all want to share what your roles are briefly before we get started? Sure. I am the Bureau Chief of Methods Development and Biological Control here in Gainesville. Uh, I'm a biological scientist, um, and I'm working on biological control of Brazilian pepper tree. Wonderful. Well, thank you again so much for being on. Um, we're here today to talk about the brand new biological control for Brazilian pepper tree. And I guess we'll start with what is Brazilian pepper tree and why do we want to control it? So Brazilian pepper is a woody plant. It's native to Argentina, Paraguay, and of course, Brazil. It was introduced as an ornamental in the late 1800s and was said to have escaped cultivation in the 1950s. Um, so it's pretty, it produces a lot of bright red berries. Um, it's a really fast growing tree, has really high germination rate. Um, it's nicknamed the Florida Holly. Um, so you can kind of understand why it's so popular in that it's, it grows really quickly. Um, it's really tolerant of a lot of environmental conditions. It produces all of these bright red berries. Um, but then of course it's problematic because it produces all of these bright red berries that are eaten by lots of birds and spread by birds and mammals. Um, it can withstand flooding, it's salt tolerant, the seedlings are shade tolerant. We suspect that it may have a allelopathy, which is essentially means that it can produce chemicals that suppress other plants. So it can take over and invade areas where it can outcompete the native plants and produce these really dense monocultures. So it's a really highly competitive, really tolerant plant that spreads really easily, grows really quickly, and just in, takes over natural areas. So there were surveys in the 1990s that found Brazilian pepper to inhabit more than 740,000 acres in Florida. Wow. Yeah. Um, so it is, in Florida, it infests more natural areas than any other invasive species. So it's a really noxious invasive weed. It can also cause toxicity. So the droops can make, the droops are what the fruits are called. They can make birds and mammals sick. They're, uh, the plant is also related to poison ivy, and so it's a skin contact irritant for some people. Um, the sap can cause irritation, and the, when the flowers, when the plant is flowering, that can also be a respiratory irritant for some people. So not only is it displacing natives and making birds and, and mammals sick, it's also a, an irritant to people. So millions of dollars are spent on mechanical and chemical control of this plant every single year, and those methods alone aren't able to really keep up with the spread of the plant. So what is the biological control for it then? Uh, well, there's two different insect species that were recently approved for release. One is a thrip. It's, and I'll, I'm definitely not going to pronounce these right, but I'll take a stab at it. But pseudo, maybe pseudo phyllothripsicini. <laughs> and the other is uh, the yellow leaf galler, or they're trying to, the, the preferred common name is the yellow Brazilian pepper leaf galler, and that's Califia latiforceps. Ooh. And so both of those have gone through, there's a lengthy regulatory process and review process that you have to go through to get an exotic organism released in North America. And so both of them have gone through that. That basically is host range testing that's conducted in a quarantine facility where you compile data over, it could be five, 10 years, could be more, where basically you're testing the fact that if you release either of these insects that they're not going to cause a problem so basically they're not going to feed on a plant you don't want to feed them on feed them to feed on it would have to be host specific enough that it's not going to have any negative consequence on the environment so 
once that host testing is done, you basically come up with a, a very large packet of information that gets submitted. It goes to the taxonomic advisory group for review. And if they deem that it's, they feel there's not a risk in, in the environment to releasing it, then it moves on to USDA PPQ, and it's a similar review process. There's, on both of those groups, there's a, a large group of scientists from different agencies and different backgrounds, botanists, land managers, um, entomologists, biologists, who all look at the petition and review it, and then collectively they make a decision on if they think it should be released. And so both of these did, there's, there's actually two other species of insect that are still in the review process for okay. Brazilian pepper but these two have gone through it and were released. I think last year they both permits were issued last year or this year, but within the past year, both of them were. So are we the only agency that's approved to release these? No, we're not. So the way it works is the USDA basically comes back with, uh, if they are going to allow you to release it, a finding of no significant impact. So that basically means anyone, and you apply for that by state. So. Florida would then apply for a permit to from PPQ okay. to be able to release it in Florida. And that could go to anybody in the state. And, and same if you want to release in another state, you would get a permit, say, for Georgia or Louisiana or wherever that may be. So this project actually is a joint project. It'll be with University of Florida IFAS and uh, USDA Agricultural Research Services Invasive Plant Research Laboratory, which is down in Fort Lauderdale. So... It basically the project will be a collaboration between all three of our agencies. Are these insects going to compete against each other for controlling the Brazilian pepper tree, or are they all going to work together? Or do we not know? The hope is that they would work together. A lot of times, biocontrol programs will utilize a couple species against a target organism to to get more of an effect. Some it doesn't always you don't have as much impact sometimes with one species. So there were initial studies done where it doesn't seem like they would actually compete against each other. Uh, and I know people are looking at that more in depth, but I don't know if, I know Kirsten was looking at that, but I don't know if she's finished her work on that to say exactly how uh, somebody had gotten money that, to specifically look at that. Um, to do research and put them together and see if there's any interference, but I think that's still ongoing. Okay. We, we don't suspect there will be, though. Otherwise yeah. they wouldn't release it, because they both are attacking the plant uh, in different ways. And where did we find these um, insects, these biocontrols? In Brazil? Brazil, or? but I don't know if Argentina. Okay. Argentina and Brazil, yeah. They were both there. So... That's a good question. I'm pretty sure if that the califia comes from Argentina. I don't know if it's also in Brazil, and I know that the thrips is in Brazil, but I don't know if it's also in Argentina. Gotcha. And I don't yeah. know if any. They may also be in Paraguay, but I don't know if anyone's done the research specifically to look for that. So we collaborate with other labs. So I say we, but I mean that broadly because um, UF, IFAS, and, and USDA will collaborate with res- researchers and with any biocontrol agent. You have kind of in-country collaborators. So you go into, so like looking at organisms that are from Brazil, if you're going to go find biocontrol agents, you need to work in country. And there's often collaborators that you work with in country. And so um, the work can be kind of centered and focused around places where you have collaborators in in country. Right. 
So we find this new biocontrol, we bring it in, it's in quarantine, we study it for a number of years, it's approved. What are the next steps? What's the rearing process like so that we can get these distributed? So for the thrips, it's interesting because a, a rearing program was developed kind of a long time ago, actually. We put the adults on cages and in whole plants, so on whole plants in cages, and the adults are allowed to lay eggs within on, on the whole plants. And so they mate, they lay eggs. The females can produce up to 220 eggs each, so they're very fecund. And it takes about 20 to 25 days for the eggs to um, become to enter the nymph or sorry the larval stage and so from the time that you put your adults in the cage you've got 20 25 days very short turnaround until you have larvae those larvae yeah. are then collected and put into separate containers and reared through into the adult stage and then you just kind of repeat that cycle so it takes about 20 days to go from the larval larva to a first larva to adult a really quick generation time and the adults live for about 50 days so okay. you can produce quite a lot of adults in any given month the psyllids i'm less familiar with um or the yellow brazilian pepper leaf galler as i should call it <laughs> um, that's a mouthful i know right <laughs> and that's the common name that's the proposed common name okay. it doesn't have an official common name um, Maybe we can get it one. <laughs> we just started calling it air potato beetle because there's no common. Yeah. yeah. But then USDA calls that lily beetles because the mm. genus is Liliocerus. Oh. So they wanted to do their own thing, but um, yeah, yeah, a lot of them don't have common names. So. Okay. Yeah, but yeah, the Pseudophyllothrips achini is kind of a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> Calify a lot of forceps too. Oh my so, goodness. Yeah. Um, Crazy. It's yeah. hard to make an acronym out of that. The yellow Brazilian pepper leaf color, though. Y-B-P-L-G. <laughs> too long. Yeah, it's it's kind of a mouthful. But I'm, I'm not as familiar with the rearing protocol for that because one hasn't been published necessarily. Um, but it's a sim similar idea. So you put adults on whole plants in cages, allow them to oviposit so they lay their eggs. And then the they're different in that the the first the nymphs um, are crawlers in the first stage, and then once they settle on a leaf, it's kind of like a scale. Then they then they're just that's where they are until they come out as an adult. But um, their generation time is uh, a little bit different. It's nine days that the adults live, so they're very short lived, wow. and it's about forty days from nymph to adult. Um, okay. So, and I don't know how fecund they are, so I don't know how many eggs they lay. I couldn't find anything about that. Anyways, the, the rearing is something that at this point has been sorted out as far as a general rearing protocol, and there have been some efforts working towards mass rearing, but we're really still in the initial stages of scaling up production. So, you know, we know how to keep colonies alive. And again, when I say we, I'm using that broadly because I know by virtue of work that has been done by our collaborators with USDA and UF, we do know how to rear the insects and how to keep a colony going. But as far as the scaling that up to produce thousands and ideally tens of thousands of individuals, eventually we're still getting there. Yeah, a lot of, so the, the, these programs, you're working in quarantine, doing that host range testing for years, and it's a small space, and you really only need enough insects to, to do your research. So you're, you're working with small numbers because of space and just you don't need a lot. So that's what Donia was saying. Once, at this point, once you get permission to bring an insect out, 
then you need to figure out how to mass rear the insect right. in a large yeah. room. Get as many as you can from, and quality insects too, yeah. from, you know, in the areas that are designated for it, mm -hmm. um, which is going to be much bigger in quarantine, but might not be huge. So that's the initial part is working on that. And Sedonia has been working a lot um, with research. So the way a lot of the programs work is you kind of have a research aspect to it. And then also the mass release, it's a, you have to work both sides. So initially you're, you're releasing in select areas that you have control over, say like public lands or private lands where you know nobody's gonna be going in and spraying herbicide on your plants that you're testing. Yeah. So you have these kind of little controlled areas where you can release your insects and then you can monitor their impact. What kind of damage are they doing? How much? You can monitor their spread. So usually that happens at first and then continues through the whole program. But once you have some initial information, you can plan for your, your mass release where you're actually just getting out as many insects as you can to as many people as you can around the state. Yeah. So there is a kind of steps to the process. Right. Yeah, we still... So we're in the beginning right now. Yeah, because we still don't know how these insects behave outside of cages. Okay. So we don't know if they're going to be predated upon by other things. So how, you know, we need to figure out things like how many, what's the ideal number of insects to introduce onto a plant? If Because if 20 is enough, if you can put 20 insects on a plant and walk away and come back and it's devastated the plant, that's great. There's no reason to put a thousand on it. Right. But if 20 doesn't cut it, maybe you need to put, you know, 100 or 200 or whatever per plant or in an area. Um, we don't know yet how well they disperse or establish. And so we need to kind of sort that out. And because it matters numbers wise, you don't want to invest too much time, energy and resources and go above and beyond if you know we want to kind of hit that. There's a sweet spot between yeah. doing enough and, and not enough. I'm thinking back to my middle school um, science fair projects and we need to establish scientific method and mm -hmm. you know establish our control to right. to go based off of yeah so bef before the insects are released in mass and available to the public especially we we need to figure out what's the optimum we need to be able to provide people with guidance you know and, yeah. and also the appropriate numbers of insects mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and we even have to figure out information such as shipping if we want to get mm -hmm. these to as many people as we can with limited resources a lot of times it involves shipping the insects so what's the best way to ship them so that when they get there they're not just alive but they're healthy and active yeah. and ready to actually do something because Sedonia had a great point that we don't know how they'll react in the field because you can't study them there. Yeah. A lot of times how they're acting in a cage inside a building is going to be different than outside. So you, you really need to monitor them at first. Right. Yeah. It's definitely a really thorough process with a lot of steps, it seems like. It is, yes. It's, it, there were issues with biocontrol in the early 1900s where this process wasn't in place. And so people took it upon themselves to move an insect from other states or from other countries here and release it without doing the host specificity testing. And so they didn't realize that the insects that they released were not specific enough to their target. It would be a generalist. So now it's 
say in this instance, it could be an insect that feeds on multi species of plants and you release it. Now it's feeding on native plants that you don't want it to. So that happens some and then uh, folks quickly learn from that. And this process came about probably 40 years ago. And since it's been in place, um, biocontrol is a very, very good track record because That's of good. it. That's good. So it is, it's a difficult process, but it, it, it's, it's needed. A necessary evil. It is. <laughs> yes, it's, it's very important. A lot of time, energy, and resources that go into making sure that anything that's released is safe to do so. Sounds yeah. like it. Yeah, a lot of the time is spent on the front end, mm-hmm. making mm-hmm. sure. And then once you get it out is the fun part. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed part one of the interview about the biological control for Brazilian pepper tree. Stay tuned for the remainder of the interview in next month's episode. Biological control on the brain? Check out our newest blog post in the Mythbuster series about air potato beetles. Blog posts cover a variety of topics and are published regularly at fdaxdpi.wordpress.com. This is the Division Digest. We are excited to welcome a new employee as well as celebrate the promotions of others. First, we would like to introduce Dr. Charles Changa, as our newest plant pathology team member. Dr. Changa comes from Gainesville with a wealth of laboratory and field experience in plant pathology and biotechnology. He conducted his PhD and postdoctoral research in plant pathology at The Ohio State University and has since been working in Uganda on various agricultural projects. Most recently, he spearheaded the detection and development of pathogen-resistant strains of banana as part of an international collaborative effort with the National Agricultural Research Laboratories in Kwanda, Uganda. Please help in welcoming him to his new role. Next, we'd like to announce the promotion of Mr. Juan Alamon Martinez to the position of Environmental Supervisor 1, overseeing Region 3, Area 3. Juan has a PhD in agricultural science. He began working with DPI in November 2012 as an OPS fruit fly trapper, and in September 2015, he accepted a career service position as a district inspector in Region 3. Prior to his tenure with DPI, he spent over 25 years working as a researcher for the National Center for Animal and Plant Health in Havana, Cuba, where he also served as supervisor of the Agricultural Pest Department. Please join us in welcoming and congratulating Juan to his new position. It is with great pleasure I announce the appointment of Ms. Cheryl Jones to the position of Assistant Bureau Chief Import Section. Cheryl has been with the Division of Plant Industry since 2002, starting her career with CHIRP. She quickly moved into becoming a District Plant Inspector, DPS 107. From there, she took over the role of Region 1 Area 1 Supervisor and most recently as the assistant to the Bureau's import section. Remember, DPA offices will be closed on November 11th for Veterans Day. (music) 
Thanks for tuning in to Plant Industry News. We appreciate our special guests for keeping us informed and updated. Follow us on social media at FDAXDPI. Be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have any questions, suggestions, or announcements you think should be included, email us at dpi-blog at fdax.gov. This podcast was produced in part by Olivia Doyle and Holly Hughes. Don't bug us. We'll have another episode next month.